I'm reading from New Rules of Sociological Method by Antony Giddens, The Problem of Adequacy. The social sciences are not the only fields of endeavor whose object is to, quote, understand human conduct. They share such an aim with literature and the arts. Literary and artistic forms, of course, are not infrequently inspired by nature and by natural events in which human activity plays no role. But for the most part, where nature enters in, it is humanized nature. The interchange between human activity and the natural environment. The arts in every culture are above all concerned with human beings themselves, with their place in the universe, their relation to gods and spirits, the characteristics of the human condition. Such portrayals of human life are bound to the reflexive capacity of human beings to reconstruct imaginatively and develop an emotional relation towards experiences that are not their own, and thereby to further their understanding of themselves. This reminds us of the closeness of the connections between the arts and the social sciences, which are basically twofold. First, both draw upon the resource of mutual knowledge in order to develop a dialogue whereby the self-understanding of the reader may be furthered through new understandings of others. Second, both the arts and the social sciences are of necessity deeply involved in a creative mediation of forms of life. The arts are not limited by the demand to provide a veridical des description of anything in reality, and since this allows them creative powers that are denied social science by its very format, there is in this a definite tension between the two. Social scientific analyses are rarely likely to yield the dramatic impact that it is possible to attain through imaginative literature or poetic symbolism. But the significance of this should not be exaggerated. Thus, Goffman's analyses of staged performances, for example, draw from and appeal to mutual knowledge. And by comparing all sorts of activities, from the most elevated to the most humble, to such performances, the author is able to achieve the sort of deflationary effect which comes from turning an existing order of things upside down, and which is such a prominent theme in comedy and farce. Generating descriptions of social conduct as a topic for sociological analysis depends upon the immersion of the observer in a form of life, whereby the hermeneutic mediation of language games can be accomplished. But how are we to take immersion here? It evidently cannot be understood as equivalent to, quote, full membership. An anthropologist who visit, visits an alien culture does not, with a deepening knowledge of that culture, sacrifice her or his original identity. The specific task of anthropology, indeed, is that of mediating the description of the one in the terms of the other. To get to know a form of life is to be able to find one's way about in it. That is to say, to possess the mutual knowledge necessary to sustain encounters with others, regardless of whether this capacity is actually employed. Two further questions arise. First, it is clear that the capacity to sustain encounters can only be judged as adequate in relation to the responses or projected responses of lay members insofar as they are prepared to accept what the observer does or says as authentic or typical. How are we to sp specify more precisely what this involves? Second, 
what is the connection between the hermeneutic task of the mediation of descriptions of forms of life and the technical concepts developed in the social sciences. These are twin aspects of what Schutz, following Weber, re refers to as the problem of adequacy. Winch, like Schutz, recognizes that the social sciences may legitimately employ concepts that are not familiar to those whose behavior they refer. Winch mentions the notion of liquidity preference in economics, saying, however, that it is logically tied to concepts business people use in their activities. Quote, for its use by the economist presupposes his understanding of what it is to conduct a business, which in turn involves an understanding of such business concepts as money, cost, risk, etc. End quote. He says little beyond this, and in his account, it is clear neither which the, quote, logical tie is, nor, as I have said in discussing his writings, what point there is in employing a technical vocabulary in sociology or the other social sciences at all, given that their explanatory relevance is supposedly limited to explicating the intelligibility of action. Sorry. In a passage immediately following that referred to above, Winch argues that it is only the relation between the economist's, quote, liquidity preference, end quote, and actors' concepts of money, cost, risk, etc., which makes the activity referred to, quote, economic, rather than, say, religious. But that matters are not as simple as this can be readily seen by taking just this example, a ceremonial in which some, someone adorns a place of worship with gold to propitiate a god is regarded both by the individual and by an observer as a religious activity, but the observer may also surely quite sensibly characterize what the actor does as an investment of funds. One can go further. There may be characterizations of an actor's conduct that he or she may not only find unfamiliar, but might actively refuse to recognize as valid if presented with them. The latter circumstance is certainly not a su sufficient basis in and of itself to reject them, although how far the person, quote, understands them, or can be helped to understand them, and how far she or he accepts them is very often likely to be relevant to adjudging their accuracy. To clarify these problems, we must retrace our steps somewhat. Interaction is the product of the constituting skills of human age. Ordinary language plays a fundamental role in the constitution of interaction, both as a median, medium of the description of acts and as a medium of communication between actors. These normally being closely interwoven with one another in the practical activities of everyday life. Hence the use of language itself is a practical activity. The generation of descriptions of acts by everyday actors is not incidental to social life as ongoing praxis, but is absolutely integral to its production and inseparable from it, since that characterization of what others do, and more narrowly their intentions and their reasons for doing something, is what makes possible the intersubjectivity through which the transfer of communicative intent is realized. It is in these terms that Verstehen must be conceived of, not as a special method of entry to the social world peculiar to the social sciences, but as the ontological condition of human society as it is produced and reproduced by its members. 
the centrality of natural language to both the constituting of action as meaningful and the process of communication in action, sorry, in interaction, is therefore such that recourse to it is necessary in the generation of any sort of research materials, end quote, in sociology. The sociological observer cannot construct a technical meta-language that is unconnected with the categories of natural language. It may be true, for somewhat different reasons, that a natural scientific observer cannot either. For example, Pogliani on the role of tacit knowledge in the framing of observations and the discussion of Gödel's theorem in the framing of theories. But this is controversial in a way in which it cannot be in the social sciences, which deal with a world which is already interpreted by its constituting subjects who constitute it as a world for study through sustaining it as meaningful. That's all in parentheses. From it may be true to meaningful. We have to separate out the consequences of this, one, for sociological method, and two, for the construction of meta-languages of social analysis or theory. 1. All types of social and historical research demand communication, in some sense, with the persons or collectivities that are the subject matter of that research. In some instances, participant observation, the use of questionnaires, interviews, and the rest, this occurs as actual interaction between observer and subject. But whether this is direct or, as in historical work, indirect, the study of human social conduct depends upon the mastery of mutual knowledge, which poses hermeneutic problems to the observer to the degree to which the object of study is embroiled in unfamiliar forms of life. Now, it is crucial to hermeneutic analysis to recognize that the practical reasoning and interpretive schemes employed in day-to-day -day life in Western cult culture or more generally in other cultures not penetrated by the rationality of Western science, are not obliged to conform to, quote, law of excluded middle, to the oppositions of sense as formulated abstractly in a lexicon, or to ideals of abstraction and precision. This does not imply that such schemas do not necessarily have a logical structure involving principles of identity and contradiction, they must have, if they're to be understandable on the level of meaning at all. But these do not have to be, quote, sought for within the frame of meaning itself and are not necessarily immediately apparent in terms of the demarcations of identity and contradiction involved in either the natural language of the analyst or in any sociological meta-language. It can also be frequently, necessarily, not universally, violated, frequently violated, producing illogical contradictions in their own terms. Two, the mediation of hermeneutic analysis is bound neither to the substance or propositional content of a frame of meaning, nor to its particular logical form. The former point is recognized by every anthrop anthropologist who states of his or her observations of a ritual that, quote, the X believe that their dance will bring rain, end quote but is quite happy to say of another of their activities, quote, the X grow their crops by planting seeds every autumn, end quote. The second point is that the, is that which Schutz was presumably getting at in distinguishing between, quote, rational constructs of models of human action, end quote, on the one hand, and, quote, constructs of models of rational ac human actions, end quote, on the other. One can discuss ambiguity without ambiguity. Sociological concepts that refer to meaningful con conduct, 
that is where concepts used by actors themselves are in, are a medium whereby interaction is accomplished have to quote pick up the differentiations of meaning which are relevant to the accomplishment but are in no way constrained to employ the same differentiations in their own formulation this is the significance of the double, double hermeneutic in the construction of theoretical meta-languages in sociology. Thus, the notion of, quote, liquidity preference, end quote, presumes that actors are able to make the differentiations of price, cost, selling, etc., whereby, quote, business activity, end quote, is brought into being and sustained, not, of course, as notions that the relevant actors can necessarily easily ex explicate or give a verbal account of, but at the same time, introduces classes of differentiations unknown to those actors. This applies not only to neologisms introduced by sociological observers, but to notions in ordinary language used in technical senses. For example, reason or cause, in which the claim must be that reformulation both presumes yet improves upon in terms of criteria of precision, etc., its use in day-to-day -day life. Every competent social actor is herself or himself a social theorist who, as a matter of routine, makes interpretations of her or his own conduct and of the intentions, reasons, and motives of others as integral to the production of social life. Hence, there is necessarily a reciprocal relation between the concepts employed by members of society and those used by sociological observers or coined by them as ne neologisms. This is of decisive importance in social science, although the positivistic apparatus of most schools of, quote, orthodox sociology has obscured it. Herein lies the pathos of 19th century social thought as uh, represented by the line of development through Comte to Durkheim and that through certain readings of Marx to the determinism of Marxism-Leninism for the extension of natural science to the study of social life was undertaken with the promise of liberating human beings from their bondage to forces perceived only dimly or in mystified form. Yet, that knowledge discloses that we are in the thrall of external societal causes which bring about mechanically events that we suppose to be under our rational control. The subject initiating the investigation is rediscovered as an object. In such a perspective, the reciprocal relation between social analysis and everyday conduct is represented only in marginal forms. For example, the self-fulfilling or self-negating prophecy. Awareness of a prediction about their conduct on the part of actors can serve to fulfill the prediction or to ensure its failure. I shall not enter here into the difficult and controversial, controversial matter of the logical form of causal laws in natural science, but however this be conceived, it seems clear that causal generalizations in the natural sciences presuppose a set of invariant relations expressed either in terms of probabilities or as universal connections. All such generalizations involve conditions, and hence even universal laws can in a certain sense be modified by human intervention in nature. The temperature at which water boils in the container can be altered by changing the air pressure although this in no way affects the law itself. 
in structural analysis. In social sciences, on the other hand, the causal relations which theoretical generalizations express do not refer to mechanical connections established in nature, but to the outcomes of human doings. This applies to generalizations in economics, which concern the distribution of material goods just as much as it does to those which are formulated in the other social sciences. As such, they are the reproduced unintended consequences of intended acts and are malleable in the light of the development of human knowledge. It does not follow from this that the connection between inputs of knowledge and the modification of those conditions in which human beings appear as objects to themselves is a simple one, necessarily expanding human autonomy. In the first place, such conditions may be altered by self-knowledge, which is false just as much by that which is valid. Second, <clears throat> the expansion of knowledge concerning the circumstances of human action occurs not in regard of human action in the abstract, but within a differentiated society in which only some might have access to it. Third, rational, quote, self-understanding is not the same as autonomy. A slave who fully comprehends the circumstances of his or her subordination may nevertheless remain a slave. Yet it is fundamental to recognize that objective, in quotes, causal conditions that influence human action can in principle be recognized and incorporated into that action in such a way as to transform it. This observation concerns features of human activity that bear only a superficial resemblance to indeterminacy in physics. It is sometimes argued that self-fulfilling and self-negating predictions do not present a, quote, difficulty unique to the social sciences, since in natural science also, observations made about a series of events may influence the course of those events. However, in social science, indeterminacy, a poor term in this connection, results from the incorporation of knowledge as a means to the securing of outcomes in purposeful conduct. Self-influencing observations or predictions represent one aspect of a much more far-reaching phenomenon in sociology than is true of natural science. And that's the end.